want to ask you to turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah chapter 29, book of Jeremiah chapter 29, and we will begin reading shortly from verse number 4 through verse 14. It is always a privilege to preach God's Word. It is especially so on significant days and times and opportunities and seasons like this. And so I want to minister more than just a sermon, but I trust that before we are finished this morning, the Holy Spirit will be able to speak to you personally, address your life, speak to you about his plan and his purpose and his promises. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 29. The famous British sculptor, his name is Sir Jacob Epstein, was visited one day in his workshop in his studio by an eminent and fellow Briton by the name of George Bernard Shaw, an author. And when George Bernard Shaw visited the studio, he noticed a huge block of stone in one corner. And he asked uh, Sir Jacob Epstein what it was for. And Epstein said, I don't know yet. I'm still making plans. To which George Bernard Shaw, somewhat astounded, said, You mean you plan for your work? Why, I change my mind several times a day. To which Epstein replied, That's all very well with a four-ounce manuscript, but not with a four-ton block of stone. And I thought about that this morning, that in a world of uncertainty, do we as Christians simply go about our business kind of winging it? Do we vacillate and flip-flop back and forth? Or is there some kind of plan of action that will enable us to live confidently and successfully without fear? And I believe this morning that Jeremiah chapter 29 is a very important passage because it is the context for one of the best known and oft quoted verses in the Bible, in verse 11, but it offers us a divine perspective this morning, a kind of God view about life in this world and how you and I are to keep moving forward in God and staying in touch with reality. And I want to read beginning in verse 4 through verse 14. I want to preach or entitle this message, Let's Get On With It, Moving Forward in 2007. And when I use the phrase moving on or moving forward, I'm not doing so in the flippant manner that you hear so many people use it. You know, they make a disaster of their life or they hurt, you know, hundreds of people around. Well, I'm just moving on. I'm talking about a scriptural plan of action where God's word and wisdom can begin to get a hold of our lives. Uh, Beginning in verse 4, read along with me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, that they may bear son, or and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For Thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Verse 11, one of the most uh, known verses, but let me, let's read it again afresh in this context. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations where I have driven you, says the Lord, and will bring you to the place from which I have caused you to be carried away captive. I want to talk to you this morning about our stressed out age. And more and more, this is becoming a growing concern. When Jesus was speaking about the last days, he gave us a warning in Luke chapter 21. He said, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day, capital D, come upon you unexpectedly. And he uses a very interesting metaphor, your heart's being weighed down. And the word literally speaks of the kind of drowsiness you feel after you've given yourself over to holiday gluttony. I mean, that's the meaning of the word, that your heart be weighed down. And he mentions a number of things. He talks about carousing which is uh, talking about careless living. The word is describing the giddiness or the hangover from too much wine. He talks about drunkenness, any intoxicant that affects uh, people's lives. And we all know sitting here today that this is how a lot of people start the new year, with carousing and drunkenness. But I don't believe that this morning that that is the major concern of most people sitting here today. Most of you have gotten the victory over that. Uh, I don't think you're sitting here planning on how you can tie one on for the new year. But it's the last one that concerns me this morning because it's the other end of the spectrum. It's the other extreme. Yes, uh, drunkenness and carousing uh, interferes with people's uh, spiritual perception. But Jesus goes on to mention also the cares of this life. Some translations use the word anxieties. Others uh, use the word the worries of this life. Jesus said, be careful. 
Because these things can take you out of the race. We know that carousing, we know that drunkenness can keep people out of the race. But Jesus is saying the cares of this life are just as able to take you out of the race and numb you to the Lord's coming and to the Lord's promises. So be aware of that. And how many know there is no end of things to be worried or anxious about in our world? Anxiety disorder, which is simply another word, a therapeutic term for fear, which describes anxiety that persists to a point that it interferes with someone's life. In other words, it becomes a settled state of mind. Anxiety disorder is the most common form of mental illness in the United States. And we're talking about something here, the cares of this life that take a very high toll in personal, in relational, and in societal life. Uh, One estimate I read said that workplace stress costs America $300 billion a year in health costs, in lost time, in lost productivity and whether that figure is accurate or exact or not I don't know but I do know this that Satan's strategy according to the word of God is to wear out the saints of the most high God his aim his strategy is to wear you out whether physically emotionally or spiritually and you and I live in a time where I want to call the hysteria level is elevated in our scripture in verse 4 it addresses all that are carried away captives carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon Now, Jeremiah is writing to Jews in the year 579 B.C. who are living in exile in Babylon. They have been taken captive. They have been brought away to this alien culture. Behind it is God's loving discipline for their sin, their disobedience, their unfaithfulness. And you've got to try to imagine this. It's like, uh, uh, you know, uh, post 9-11 America where your city or your home has been ravaged. Your friends, your family members have been killed. And now you've been taken hostage uh, into another country. And so the people he's writing to, as they looked at their life and their situation, their prospects, their future did not seem that promising at all. I'm sure questions like what in the world is going on were going through their minds. And I want to take this because it's comparable to, or at least it is a type of, the culture of hysteria that is so prevalent today. Now the word hysteria is a very simple definition. It refers to an uncontrollable outburst of emotion or fear, especially where it becomes a state of mind. Hysteria refers to unmanageable fears and emotional excess. And it is not an exaggeration this morning to say that hysteria is very much a part of the air that we breathe in our culture today. 
a culture that manufactures all kinds of threats and concerns and fears. These are being manufactured and multiplied all the time. Time Magazine had an article about this in which it said it would be a lot easier to enjoy life if there weren't so many things trying to kill you. And the major culprit that feeds and fuels so much of this is the media. And listen to me closely this morning because the media has a vested interest in negative reporting and in overhyped threats in promoting a kind of hysteria in people's minds and thinking and outlook. And given that, today's threat assessment is large and it is growing all the time. And if you would just let me indulge me for just a minute to try to explain this, you can see this in so many areas and levels. We see it in the area of the environment and the weather. Last year, the horrible disaster of Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans, and there is no question that this was a horrible devastation caused by a Category 4 hurricane. But the reporting of all of that and the media of all of that uh, begin reporting things like uh, unspeakable atrocities. The mayor of the city of New Orleans speaking about people's animalistic behavior and referring to killings and rapes uh, and gang violence that was rampant uh, in the New Orleans Superdome. The problem with all that reporting is it wasn't true. The facts did not match at all what actually was the reality, but they were embellished. Everything from the mayor to Oprah Winfrey communicating this kind of hysteria. And it was following Hurricane Katrina that it gave birth to the prediction at the beginning of 2006 that the hurricane season in America in 06 was going to be the worst ever. That's what we were told. You know how many hurricanes hit the continental United States in 2006? Zero. But if you listen to the the worst ever, we see it in the area of the global warming hysteria, which does produce a lot of hot air. But global warming has become a political agenda, kind of political dogma to propagandize the uninformed. As we read things like, quote, science has underlined, proved that global warming is a real danger and that human beings are responsible for it. Our dependency on carbon emissions and fossil fuels is leading to global warning. And we are told we need to take drastic steps. America needs to follow the Kyoto Accord. And you have the likes of Al Gore writing his book, An Inconvenient Truth, planetary emergency and you've got his new buddy Prince Charles in England who all his life has known nothing but luxury but Prince Charles coming out and saying things we are living on borrowed time 
and this kind of hysteria. Never mind, and people have forgotten that back in the early 70s, the hysteria then was not about global warming. It was about global cooling, and we were warned about the new coming ice age. And then there's the hysteria over health risks, secondhand smoke. Now, smoking is a nasty, foul habit. But, you know, we got people running around thinking the greatest threat. Listen, I can think of hundreds of things far more damaging. You know, here are people, they're involved in sinful, ungodly, unrighteous behavior. But, oh, secondhand smoke, it's going to kill us all. It's hysteria. Then we had the hysteria over avian or bird flu. Experts were predicting it was going to cause a chaotic pandemic. To this day, you know how many people have died from human beings from bird flu in America? Zero. The economy. You know, from all the reporting about the economy, you think we were in the worst economy in decades. People feel it, even though what they feel does not match at all what the facts are. But this constant negative reporting, oh, U.S. consumer confidence uh, uh, blips down. Oh, confidence, you know, and and people, the housing market's sinking. Job availability is, you know, it's constantly being pumped out. I like seafood. But one of the latest articles is experts are now warning that by the year 2050, there will be no viable fisheries left. That we are the last generation to see wild seafood. It's over, folks. Threats to our personal freedom, like the Patriot Act, You have people standing up saying it is a grave threat to liberty and democracy because all the government's going to do is spend time listening into your conversations, meddling in your life. War in Iraq, the war on terror, we have nothing but a constant stream of negative hysteria that is being pumped out To people today, everything from prisoner abuse at Abu Ghraib to the United States unilateralism to there were no weapons of mass destruction to the empowerment of insurgents to how that the U.S. mission has been derailed and they're just pumping out, pumping out nonstop. Doesn't mean that there aren't challenges. It doesn't mean that there aren't real, but all you hear is this constant flow of negativity. One scientist, he's actually, I don't know how to say this, but I believe it's a Gaia scientist, Gaia, G-A-I-A, being the Greek mother earth goddess. Uh, So his name is James Lovelock. He's predicting a planetary wipeout. And you know, how many know it's very easy to come up with doomsday scenarios? It's very, you know, Y2K seven years ago. Oh, when it turns 2000, everything's going to shut down. Every computer's going to crash. The financial market's going to go. And it's hysteria. 
And the problem and the concern and the reason for preaching this and the reason to be aware of this is that hysteria incapacitates people and it skews their perspective and it results in a steady erosion and eating away at people's confidence and hope for the future. And the problem with a lot of things I've mentioned is people are hyping these threats but ignoring things that are real threats. But they create this kind of culture or atmosphere of hysteria that we live in. And I am convinced that people are affected by this far more than they even realize because it's all they hear. That's all that's pumped out. It's all that they take in. Bad. It's negative. It's, it's worse. It's gonna, oh, you don't know how... It goes on and on. And we are very susceptible. As one man named uh, David Ropek said one time, these are true words. He said, we are hardwired in our brains to fear first and to think second. And the reason this is so effective is that we are predisposed to hysteria. We are predisposed not to faith, but to unbelief. We are predisposed to negativity than we are to confidence. And this constant bombardment eats away at people's confidence and hope for the future. I want to talk secondly with you about God's plan of action. One of my favorite testimonies and models in all the scripture are the sons of Issachar that are mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 of the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Now he is not describing people who are up on current events. See, don't think this is some kind of political statement or some kind of rant on current events today. No, there's scriptural wisdom. Men who had understanding of the times talks about those who had wisdom from God to interpret the events of their age and to take a proper course of action. I am convinced in my soul this morning that what every one of us need from the youngest believer to the oldest saint is we need God's perspective for our lives. We need God's perspective for where we are today. That's what this scripture we read is all about because verse 4 begins and says, this is what the Lord says. How many know that what we need to know is not what the New York Times, the Arizona Daily Star, the LA Times, or Newsweek says. We know what the Lord says. We need to have his perspective. If we're going to live effectively and successfully, we need to listen to what the Lord says. You know, far, far too many people are living a kind of I cannot wait until existence. Their whole mindset is, I can't wait until. And someone wrote and said, I cannot wait until I'm in a better job. I cannot wait until school is out. I cannot wait until I am finished with school. I cannot wait until I feel better. I cannot wait until I am out of debt. I cannot wait until we are financially comfortable. 
I cannot wait until I get married. I cannot wait until we have kids. I cannot wait until the kids move out. I cannot wait until things get better at our house. And you know, there's so many, that's how they live. I can't wait until. See, if that's your mindset, you're not living. You're just waiting until. You're vacillating back and forth. You know, you can do that with a four-ounce manuscript, but life is not a four-ounce manuscript. It's a four-ton block of stone, and you better have a plan of action. And God's direction in our scripture this morning calls us to move on and to move forward. I want to read verses 5 through 9 again to you because it's a general overview of what the Lord told these people. And it's relevant to our lives. Beginning in verse 5, build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace or the prosperity of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. Pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you have uh, you caused to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Now remember who he's writing to. He's writing to those who have been forcibly relocated to Babylon, a foreign country. Quite possibly they are living in Babylonian Jewish ghettos at the time. And these are people who could easily spend most of their time grumbling, saying things like, you have no idea, you know, just look at where we are at. Uh, They see no future. They view their situation as hopeless. Uh, They look at themselves as being victims. And God is coming to these people, and essentially he is saying to them, you need to move forward. You need to move on. Following September 11th, it wasn't but a few days that it passed when President Bush, along with others, were urging American citizens to move forward again with their lives. Mayor Rudy Giuliani spoke to an audience and he said these words, our hearts are broken, but they're still beating. And they're beating stronger than ever before. He said that the institutions of New York City must resume the theater, the ball games, the financial markets, the business of day-to-day living. It's not easy to do in a situation like this, but it's necessary. If the president is correct in saying that this will be a long, drawn-out war, we can't spend the next several years of our lives on hold, afraid to travel, afraid to invest, afraid to make a purchase, afraid to do business, afraid to move forward. See, those words echo what the prophet Jeremiah says to these people living in Babylon in the year 597 B.C. If I could take this and break it down for you, I want you to look at a number of things because verse 5, God says, first of all, I want you to build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. See, God is saying to them, life goes on and that God's will is for you and I 
to live productive lives where we are. I want you to build houses and dwell in them. I want you to plant gardens and eat their fruit. I want you to be productive in the place where you are. See, the mentality that says, I'll serve God when. I'll serve God when I feel better. I'll serve God when I finally get things worked out at home or at work, whatever the case might be. And people are just simply waiting for something to happen. God comes and said, I want you to build houses. He says, I want you to live in a temporary situation with a sense of permanence. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to continue to work. I want you to continue to labor. I want you to continue to invest. He didn't say, go buy gold and stash it somewhere. He said, I want you to invest. I want you to labor. I want you to plant gardens and eat their fruit. And what God is saying is even though life is temporary, do what you can to create stability and security for yourself in your situation. Build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, eat their fruit. That you and I as Christians are called to live as if the Lord Jesus could come at any moment. But we are also called to plan as if he won't come for many years. He's saying in this temporary situation, I want you to live productive lives with a sense of permanence. He says in verse 6, I want you to marry and have sons and daughters I want your sons to marry. I want you to give your daughters to husbands that you be increased in the land and not diminished. What is God saying? He's saying, I want you to keep relationships at the top of your priority list. Do not let the world infiltrate and take a toll on your relationships and on your family life. Make this a priority. Marry, have sons and daughters, give them in marriage. You know, there are a lot of people who believe in end-time prophecy, but their mentality is, oh, you know, we're living in the last days. You can't bring children into a world like this. I want to tell you, that's not a biblical mentality at all. They could have easily said, we're captives, we're in Babylon. Do you see what's happening here? Forget it. God says, no, I want you to put priority on your relationships. Marry, have children. Raise them for the glory of God. Verse 7, he said, seek the peace, literally the prosperity of the city where I have caused you to be taken captive. I want you to pray for it because God said in its peace, You will have peace. God wants us to live engaged lives. Our lives are engaged in the world, the city, the culture, the nation that we're living in. Think how radical this was to those people living in captivity in Babylon. Seek the peace, the prosperity of this city. Pray for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. You got to be kidding. Pray for them. 
I mean, these are the people that invaded our land and took us away. Seek the prosperity of Babylon? No way. I'm going to sit here like Jonah waiting for its deserved destruction to come. But the truth is, and God was going to judge Babylon and he will judge our world. But the truth is, no man is an island. And our lives impact others and they impact us, whether you like it or not. And so God says, I want you to pray for them. I want you to bless them. I want you to interact with them. I want you to invest in that city. See, he is not fostering here an escapist mentality. He's not saying the world's going to hell. The world's going to be judged. And so just you sit by and watch it happen. Just let it all go to hell because that's where it's headed. Write books about how America's going to be destroyed. How bad it is. Well, if I take this word to be true, and it is, tells me I better pray for America to prosper. I need to pray for Tucson, Arizona to prosper. It's under the bondage of the devil. Well, so was in Babylon. It was a center of heathen idolatry. And God said, I want you to pray for and I want you to seek the peace of that city. Because in its peace and prosperity, you're going to find peace and prosperity. I better pray for America to prosper. Because without it, we cannot be the leaders of the free world. And yes, with all of our faults that are very real, and I know about them. The fact is that America is still the leader of the free world and it is still the center for the preaching of the gospel. And without America, it would be a whole lot worse. See, without the prosperity of America, we're not going to be able to defend ourselves from real threats. We're not going to be able to give humanitarian aid. We're not going to be able to establish peace and we're not going to be able to preach the gospel. God, I want you to live engaged lives where you are. Get involved. Pray for the peace of that city. Seek the prosperity of that place where you are because when it prospers, you're going to prosper also. Verses 8 and 9. He said, don't let the prophets or the diviners deceive you for they prophesy falsely. God is saying, I want you to live discerning lives. Praying, listening to God, standing on and seeking truth. You know, the only way to defeat a culture of hysteria is you must have a discerning spirit and you must build your life on God's unchanging truth. The only way you're going to combat the hysteria is you have to be listening to God. Don't let the prophets or the diviners deceive you. You know, I ask myself the question, who are the modern-day fortune tellers, the modern-day diviners? Well, to a large degree, they are the media and the latest rage either in the secular or the religious world. Don't listen to them. 
You need to live discerning lives. Not stupid, but discerning lives. Not stick your head in the sand, but discerning. Instructed by the word and the wisdom of God. You say, how important is this? Well, just remember the 12 spies that went in to spy out the land. Ten of them brought back a negative report of unbelief, and they were, beloved, in the majority, but only two of them trusted God and his promises, Joshua and Caleb, and they were the only ones eventually to enter into the promised land. See, there's something about faithless people who all they do, all they want to do, consciously or unconsciously, is they want to discourage those who want to obey God. And you know what I see in all of this this morning is that unlike the world that fosters a culture of hysteria, the kingdom of God is a culture of progress. That wherever you are, God's call is to move forward. And in Jeremiah's prophecy to these people, he is saying, you know what, instead of blaming their situation... God is wanting them to transform their situation. And as bad as your situation may be this morning, and as much uh, uh, there's a part of you that wants to opt out of your situation, God is saying, no, my will is for you to transform that situation. Build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, eat the fruit, uh, marry, have sons and daughters, give your sons and daughters in marriage that you are increased and not diminished. Uh, I want you to be engaged in seeking the prosperity of the city, the culture, the place where you're living, and don't let the false prophets and diviners deceive you, but begin to listen to my voice. God's kingdom is a kingdom of progress. Yes, there are real dangers. Yes, there are real threats. Uh, Not everything is perfect, but God says, my will and my word is for you to move forward and to see progress right where you are. You transform that situation there in Babylon. You transform it by your obedience. You transform it by your prayer. You transform it by the kind of lives that you live and the priorities that you set for yourself and your family. God is saying you can make a difference. I want to close and talk to you about faith to match the times because this is not just a cliche. You know, we hear it said, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. It's a bit of a cliche. People use it kind of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Maybe you'll just send your $25 love gift down to, you know. (laughs) Well, you know, yes, that's true. God loves me. How many believe that? God loves you. God has a plan for my life. It's true. God already told Jeremiah that. Before you were born, I knew you. Before you came out of your mother's womb, I had ordained you as a prophet to the nations. But the Christian life is about you and I embracing God's plan and God's will for our lives. Right here is the real key. 
that the key to the Christian life is not what I want. It's what Christ wants. And yielding my life to and living out his plans for my life. Now that's easy to do. It's easy to agree with the cliche, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life as long as you like the plan. As long as you like the plan, all right, where where did I sign? Okay, very good. Thank you, Lord. Bless you. Sometimes God's plans are not the easiest. I want to tell you they are the best when all is said and done. And that's why the Bible over and over keeps telling us that the kingdom of God is a culture of hope. And this is verse 11, one of the great promises in the Bible. And more than a promise, it's actually a kind of life verse Where God said, I know the thoughts or the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Thoughts of evil and not of good, or thoughts of good, not of evil, to give you a future and hope. Get get that order right or it's serious serious false doctrine. Thoughts of good, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. See, with God, we always have a future. Even if we go through setbacks, even if we experience failures, even if we find ourselves in unexplained situations, things that do not have an easy answer, easy, quick resolution, I know the thoughts that I have towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of good, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Someone wrote about hope and said this. Hope is a response to the... Which has its foundation in the promises of God. It looks at the future as time for the completion of God's promise. But hope, listen to this, hope is not a doctrine about the future. It is a grace cultivated in the present. It is a stance... In the presence which deals with the future. As such, it is misunderstood if it is valued only for the comfort it brings. As if it should say, everything is going to be all right in the future because God is in control. Therefore, relax and be comforted. Hope operates differently. Christian hope alerts us to the possibilities of the future as a field of action and as a consequence fills the present with energy. In other words, when God said, my plans are to give you a future and a hope, it is not that we put our lives on hold. It is so that he might fill our present with spiritual energy a focus on his will and purpose and a faith that matches the times in which we live and the aim and the purpose of this great promise in verse 11 is so that we might set a right course and a right posture for our lives. And that's why you can't separate verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a future and a hope. You can't separate that from what follows verses 12 and 13 where God says then, say the word then, then, 
Say it again. Then. Now, there's a promise is to lead to then. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God is saying, I know what I have planned for you. They are plans of good, not of evil. You have a future and a hope. But that promise is to lead to a present course of action and posture that says, I believe God's promises, and so my present is going to be filled with energy, and that energy is going to be directed to seeking God, to seeking his face, and to seeking and walking in his plan for my life. That the most important commodity in our lives is the presence of God. Listen, everything else, things, material possessions, peace, prosperity, all of this is nothing without God's presence. I know the thoughts I have towards you, says the Lord. This is what I'm thinking about you. Put your name there. Corey Galindis, Bob Griffith, Julian Alvarez. I know the thoughts that I have towards you, says Lord. Thoughts of good, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. To motivate us to do what? To seek God. To trust him and to obey him with our lives, uh, knowing that the most important possession in life is the presence of God. See, he is certainly not setting before them or us a kind of blue sky vision where the sky is always blue. What he's saying is that we can live in the present by putting the future into God's hands. That's why Jesus said, abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. He's really telling the people through Jeremiah the same thing. This is my plan. You have a future and a hope. But the way that's activated is you're going to abide in me. You're going to seek my face. You're going to find me when you search for me with all your heart. Because unless you abide in me, you don't have a future. Unless you abide in me, there is going to be no fruit. Just like the vine, the branches can't bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you. Abiding. Speaks of permanent fellowship. Seek me. Seek me with all your heart. Speaks of permanent fellowship, not a temporary plugging in of our lives. We don't come to church on Sunday morning to plug our lives in our spiritual battery for an hour and a half or so and then go on our merry way. No, he calls us to an abiding fellowship and faith to match the times that we live in. That I can live in the present by putting the future into God's hands, knowing that he is good and knowing what he has planned and purposed for my life is good. Whatever it takes to get there, I can trust him and I can live in the presence if I will seek his face and call on his name and put him first in my life. You know... I'm not trying to set before you a pie-in-the-sky type of vision. I understand real challenges, dangers, and threats. But I 
really believe this morning that sitting in this congregation, people who love God, who are born again and filled with the Spirit, I really believe that we have been, all of us, influenced to varying degrees by our culture than most of us are aware of. And that while we may mouth words, you know, what we feel is totally different. We feel, yeah, there's no use, there's no hope, it's bleak and it's getting bleaker, it's dark, it's getting darker. And that can affect us. And it slowly erodes the confidence that we need to live successfully in this world. And to have a godly plan of action for our lives and for our family. And you know, this whole culture of hysteria, let me just remind you of something. Some of you are not old enough to remember this, but you can go back to the early 70s and it was a similar time where there was a whole lot of negative talk about the future of our nation. People were talking about how America's going downhill how that economic uh, opportunity is vanishing, how, how all of the best days are now behind us. But you know, we are here 30 years later, and no, everything is not perfect. Yes, we desperately need revival. Yes, there is a moral slide that must be counteracted and the people of God must stand up and must take action. But I want to tell you, we still have a future and we still have a hope. God is still moving in America. And you can hear his voice, you can see his hand at work, and there are souls that are still needing to, and there are souls that are still coming to God. And the scripture is saying to us this morning, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Why don't you take your bulletin, you have it real quick, and open it. Take out that lime green piece of paper. It's called a prayer for the new year. It was in your bulletin for a reason, so that you might read it, benefit. But rather than just trusting that that's what all of you are going to do, we're going to read it together as we close. Because it fits in exactly with what Jeremiah said. He talks about faith to match the times. Men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. A faith that matches the times, whatever those times might be and however they might be defined in the present. God calls us to a faith that matches the times and never to be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. While spontaneous prayer, prayer, heartfelt prayer spoken from the heart has its place, reading prayers that have already been thoughtfully spoken or written also have their place. That's what you find in a whole lot of the New Testament. I'm not putting this maybe on the level of the Bible, but it is beneficial. So read with me or follow with me. A prayer for the new year. 
Lord Jesus, I rededicate myself afresh to you today. I want you to take my life this coming year and use it for your glory. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And all of God's people said, amen. I pray that you will keep me from sin, from anything that will bring dishonor to your name. And the people said, keep me teachable by the Holy Spirit. I want to move forward for you. Don't let me settle in a rut. And the people said, may my motto this year be, he must increase, I must decrease. The glory must all be yours. Help me not to touch it. And they said, teach me to make every decision a matter of prayer. I dread the thought of leaning on my own understanding. Oh, Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Amen. May I die to the world and even to the approval or blame of loved ones or friends. Give me a single pure desire to do the things that please your heart. And the people said, amen. Keep me from gossip and criticism of others. Rather, help me to speak what is edifying and profitable. Amen. Lead me to needy souls. May I become a friend of sinners as you are. Give me tears of compassion for the perishing. For some of you getting nervous, it sounds like a Catholic church. (laughs) Relax. Amen is a Bible word. It means, so be it. And Jesus is the yes and the amen. So relax. Let me look on the crowd as my Savior did. Till my eyes with tears grow dim. Let me view with pity the wandering sheep and love them for love of him. And the people said, Lord Jesus, keep me from becoming cold, bitter, or cynical in spite of anything that may happen to me in the Christian life. Guide me in my stewardship of money. Help me to be a good steward of everything you have entrusted to me. Amen. Help me to remember moment by moment that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. May this tremendous truth truth influence all my behavior, the people said. Amen. And Lord Jesus... I pray that this may be the year of your return. I long to see your face and to fall at your feet in worship. During the coming year, may the blessed hope stay afresh in my heart, disengaging me from anything that would hold me here and keeping me on the tiptoes of expectancy. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And all the people said, Amen. Let's bow our heads.